This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear about that? <laughs> I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In a sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. In early March of this year, I had some pretty textbook flu symptoms. I was very fatigued and had a lot of muscle and skin pain. And my primary physician at the time thought it was a virus, but it actually turned out that I had COVID-19. And it took me a while to actually confirm that. And by that point, I didn't really feel the need to say too much about it, considering I had recovered fairly well and what the rest of the country was going through. Not that much was known about COVID at the time. And nine months later, there's still not that much known about COVID, according to my guest today, Dr. Otto Yang, who is an infectious disease doctor at UCLA, I met because I volunteered to give blood and be part of a study in the early days of COVID. And he is a brilliant man. He's leading a global clinical trial to fight COVID-19, which is sponsored by the NIH. And I really wanted to get him on the podcast to talk about his experience in the lab and as a clinician fighting this disease. We had an amazing talk. I hope you don't find part of it too dry. We talked a lot about the politicization of the pandemic and when he will be getting his vaccine. And most importantly, the enduring beauty of human optimism and generosity. Having Dr. Yang as a resource has been really incredible in my journey with COVID. And so I wanted to share this with all of you. So let's get to my chat with Dr. Yang. So you've been at UCLA since 1999, right? Mm -hmm. yes. 
in infectious disease. And I wanted to ask you, I mean, first of all, thank you so much for doing this. I, you know, I, I have the honor and privilege of getting to know you through my own experience with COVID and, and being a part of your study. And when over the course of these months, it's just, I thought it would be so nice for everybody else to have the privilege um, to get to hear your thoughts on things. So thank you so much for being here. Yeah, well, um, I mostly get to hear me saying, I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> well, you probably don't know until you know, but you're probably learning more every day. So how did you get into infectious disease? So starting preschool, I first wanted to be a cowboy, then I wanted to be an astronaut. <laughs> And then after that, I wanted to be a medical scientist. And then I stuck with that one. And my initial plan was, so I always wanted to combine science research with medicine. And my initial plan was cancer because my best friend in first grade died of cancer. But then when I got to doing my medical training, my residency training in internal medicine, I was at Bellevue Hospital in New York City in the early 90s. And AIDS was, was just rampant. So even though my training was supposed to be general internal medicine, more than half of my patients had HIV. And so then the need was so obvious to address that with science. And it was also a time where science and infectious diseases were really merging and things that we were discovering in the lab could be applied to patients and infectious diseases very quickly. And at that point, cancer was still in the dark ages. Even though there was a lot of science being done, there were no applications to treating patients. And so I chose infectious diseases at that point. Did you feel like with that discipline, you could have a faster impact on the recovery of patients? That was the hope, yes, that the research I did would, would have more immediate impact on patients. And my plan was always to start very, very basic and do a laboratory research and to move more and more towards, towards from bench to bedside as my career progressed. So you've essentially been studying, the immune system has been your focus, would you say? Yes, my focus has been, well, it started off with HIV because that was what was all around me. And my focus has been on how the immune system and HIV, the interplay between the two and why the immune system doesn't do as well against HIV as it does against other viruses. And the hope has been that that type of knowledge would be useful for treatments or vaccines or both. So in terms of, in terms of, being both a researcher and a clinician, do you feel that that gives you a unique vantage point into COVID and how it's, or, or, which is the dominant way that you're looking at it? Yeah, so it, it does give me an interesting perspective. And so that is what has got, gotten me into leading a lot of the research trials at UCLA. So as soon as COVID hit, of course, companies and the government started wanting to do trials for different treatments. And there were a lot of choices. And because of my background in viruses and the immune system, and also being a clinician, it kind of put me in the spot of helping guide where UCLA went in terms of research treatments for COVID. And so that perspective basically has, has been what has kind of put me in the center of, of a lot of our COVID responses here. I have a follow-up question there, but I, I would love for you to take us back a little bit to January, say, of this year. When did you start to hear about this virus and when did you start to become concerned about it? Yeah, I started to hear about it the same way all of us did through 
news reports. I think that was in December, the first reports of, the, of these weird cases of a SARS-like illness happening around this market in Wuhan. So I heard about it the same way that, that all of us did. And it already started not to make sense by the end of December, early January, because the government of China at that point was saying there was no evidence of person-to-person transmission, but in the scientific literature and even in the media, you know, there were more and more reports of people that hadn't been to the market who were getting the disease. So it quickly became pretty apparent that this was something that was going to start spreading like wildfire. And as a scientist, when, at what point in the trajectory of it in December, did it, did you start to really become concerned? Yeah, I would say I started getting really concerned in, in January because there were, it looked like it was starting to spread pretty quickly in China and all throughout Wuhan. And the government at that point in China wasn't taking it seriously. I believe they had a really large Chinese New Year's gathering where they had tens of thousands of families all gathered together indoors. So at that point, I think, and not just me, a lot of people took it very seriously. And so, for example, some countries like Taiwan immediately started closing borders and screening people. And at that point, were they screening people? Had they identified exactly what this virus looked like? How were they screening people? Yeah, the, the story is pretty amazing. So the, Chi- the Chinese scientists, you know, to credit them, they isolated this virus and had the sequence already by end of December, I believe. So they, they had already sequenced the whole virus. And I mean, I, I think they had some, some kind of help from their prior SARS experience. So they, this virus behaved very similarly to SARS. So they immediately started looking for a virus that was related. So that, that helped them quite a bit in terms of figuring out what it was and being able to figure out the genetic sequence. And how do you, as a family man and a scientist at the same time, do you process fear around this stuff? Do you feel scared? Did you start to feel worried about it personally and, and for all of us and et cetera? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, it definitely raised a lot of anxiety. So we, we were actually scheduled to go visit relatives in Taiwan in forever and we canceled our trip out of, you know, ironically out of concern that because Taiwan is so close to China that, that it would be risky. Of course, in retrospect, we should have gone and stayed probably. <laughs> so that, that, that's a country that has had less than 700 cases and only seven deaths this whole pandemic. So, But yeah, it definitely raised a lot of alarms and we were very concerned. And of course, in infectious diseases at UCLA, we, we saw this coming and started uh, preparing and started preparing schedules where we had extra layers of backup call available. And all of us were, were really worried about it. How does the hospital start preparing for a virus like this? Yeah, so UCLA was actually originally going to be one of the Ebola receiving centers, treatment centers in the region. So they were already pretty far ahead of the curve. So making sure that there was enough PPE around making sure that, that people with expertise in infection control were available to set plans, contingency plans for how to set up containment, making sure we had enough ICU beds. All of these things uh, were already kind of the, the outlines for all of these things were already in place because of Ebola. And what, this is an RNA virus, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So, but, and lots of cold viruses are RNA viruses as well. What, what makes... SARS and and those types of viruses, what makes them different from an RNA cold virus? Yeah, it has to do with the severity 
of disease, right? So there are four other coronaviruses that have been in humans for at least decades, and they cause the common cold. They are cousins of this virus. A couple of them are in the same family, they're beta coronaviruses. It really has to do with how the virus interacts with the immune system and how much disease they cause. And what determines how serious the disease is is something that we really don't understand that well at this point. Can you take a minute to talk about the immune system a little bit and explain what it is and how it works and and how complex it is and the different kinds of cells and who's responsible for what? Yeah, there's, there's way more about the immune system that we don't understand than we do, but you can divide it into two major categories. So one is called the innate immune system and one is called the adaptive immune system. So the innate immune system is cells that recognize general patterns. So bacteria or viruses will have certain types of proteins or certain types of genetic material that looks very different from us. And so the innate immune system are cells that they're called pattern recognition receptors. So they have receptors that look for these patterns, the things that are not normal for us. And those cells kind of react in general to anything that looks off. And then the second part of the immune system, and so that part of the immune system will then trigger or work in concert with the adaptive immune system. So the adaptive immune system has at least two components. One is B cells and one is T cells. So B cells are the cells that make antibodies. So each B cell and each T cell actually makes, has one specific receptor that responds against something foreign. And you can think of, I mean, a good analogy would be like keys and locks. So if you think about viruses and bacteria as being like locks and keys being the things that fit that lock, the way the adaptive immune system, B and T cells work is that they, they each have their own key and the immune system makes as many keys as possible because it doesn't know what's out there. And so B cells, for example, each B cell makes one antibody and there are at least a trillion possible antibodies that can be made just through the way the genetics work, recombinations of genes. And so the body makes all those B cells and any of the B cells that make an antibody that reacts against something in our own body, that cell is deleted because it, it will cause autoimmunity. It will cause reaction against the body. We don't want an antibody that reacts against something in our cells. And the T cells work analogously. So a T cell that recognizes something, it's weeded out. And so by default, every other leftover cell recognizes something foreign because all the ones that are recognizing something in ourselves are gone. So everything left over is something foreign. And most of these keys are never ever used. But when something, a virus comes around, an antibody, some of a few B cells and a few T cells will have receptors that are attuned just by chance because they've made so many of them. If you make every possible key, then any lock that comes around, you'll one of them will fit, right? So that's basically how our antibodies are made. Uh, so the B cells or the T cells that respond against the virus will start to multiply and make more copies. So it's an impossibility that a virus would be introduced to the immune system that it doesn't have some roadmap for how to create an antibody against? Probably, yeah. The, the diversity of, of the receptors made on B and T cells is so great that generally probably just about any virus that could come in would be recognized, yes. And then, so for as far as T cells are concerned, because I've also heard you say that you think T cells will be important for long-term immunity against COVID. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. 
I don't know how much you want to bore your listeners, but it's not boring. <laughs> it's so fascinating. Yeah. So I can give you kind of a, a brief primer. So, you know, antibodies are proteins that float around in our blood and in the fluids outside of our cells, right? So if a virus is floating around in the outside of our cells, an antibody can bind it, right? But some bacteria and of course viruses, mo they spend most of their life cycle inside cells. So antibodies can't access them. So certain types of T cells called CD8 T cells or, or killer cytotoxic T cells have evolved as a countermeasure to that, to things that hide inside. So almost all cells in our body, uh, of course, cells have to make proteins which form their own structure. And basically what's evolved is a way for cells to display on their surface a sample of all the proteins inside. So cells will basically chop up little pieces of the proteins that are inside them. And these little pieces of proteins are held in display in basically display receptors. So these, these little other proteins that are meant to hold little pieces of protein, and then they come up to the surface. So it's, you can think of it almost as like a hand coming out of the cell, holding a little piece of protein and saying, this is what's inside me, right? And a T cell has a receptor. And if that's something foreign, the T cell can say, uh-oh, that there's something foreign in this cell because you know, T cell receptors, as I told you, all the, all the self ones are gone. So anything left over is recognizing something foreign. So if a T cell that has a receptor that recognizes that binds, the killer T cell will actually kill that cell because if it's binding, that means there's something that's not supposed to be there in that cell. And something that's not supposed to be there will be either a virus or a bacterium or cancer protein. So these cells are evolved to deal with that. So since antibodies can't get inside cells, cells uh, devise this way to show a sample of what's inside them to the immune system to be scanned. Basically. And then they martyr themselves. Yes. They, they, they're killed because they're up to no good. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on The Goop List, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. So the antibodies can only address viruses that have not gone into the center of the cell yet. It's just vi virus that's in the bloodstream? Yes, viruses that are floating around or outside, anything outside of cells. So in the bloodstream or in the lungs, out, you know, in between the cells, antibodies can get to all those spaces. Have you been observing that T cells have been able to penetrate COVID infected cells and destroy those cells? Yes. So the other people have published that as well. You know, th th this is a mechanism that's been evolved specifically mostly to deal with viruses. And so it's not surprising that for COVID, this works as well. And so several scientific groups have 
published and shown that T cells are active against COVID and we have as well, although we haven't published that work yet. But you will? We will. And so is it fair to say that in terms of a longer term immunity, T cells will play more of a role than antibodies? We hope so. We don't know. So every virus seems to be a little different in terms of how the immune system responds. And for some viruses, antibodies are more important. For some viruses, T cells are more important. As a general trend, antibodies tend to be more important for preventing an infection, from from preventing it from getting started. And T cells are more important in terms of clearing up the infection or preventing the infection from causing disease. When did your study start? The one that I'm involved in, was that in April? April. We started collecting blood from people in April. And since antibodies are very easy to measure, and just about any lab that has basic tools can do it, we started first by measuring antibodies. And one of our first questions, which we've answered, is how long do the antibodies last? Do they, do they hang around a long time or, or do they start to go away? The answer to that question from us is that they seem to be going away very quickly. And they're in the early phases of disease, they're dropping in half. Within every 20 to 30 days, they drop in half. There is some debate about that. So interestingly, uh, scientists always fight with each other anyway. But in this, for this topic, it's, it's been a little bit more angry than usual, kind of maybe reflecting what's going on in greater society. So th- there has been some controversy about this. There have been other groups that say they're not seeing the same thing. And still other groups that have said, well, you know, you see that, but it's not important. So there's a lot of debate about it, but in our, in my mind, it, it does mean that immunity doesn't last that long. And it suggests that people will become susceptible to getting infected again. And also in support of that is the fact that those other common coronaviruses that I mentioned, the ones that cause a common cold, people are susceptible to being reinfected with those. So immunity against those lasts maybe six months to 12 months, and then people can be infected again. So there's It's not too surprising then if that's the case with this coronavirus, which is a cousin of those. Are people susceptible to reinfection because of any mutation or is it just that the antibodies go away and you're susceptible to the same exact virus again? Yes, it's it's because the antibodies or the T cells or both are dropping and people are then becoming susceptible. Fortunately, this virus does not seem to be mutating very much. It's mutating very, very slowly and it hasn't mutated enough to affect to need any sort of change in the sequences that have so far been used for vaccines. Mm. And so in your cohort that you're studying, has anybody gotten reinfected? Not that we know for sure. There have been a couple of people where the antibodies seem to have jumped back up after they've gone down. And the most likely explanation for that would be re-exposure to the virus and possible reinfection. But we haven't proven that anyone got reinfected And part of that is the fact that it's kind of difficult to do that. So, so far, there have been five reported cases in the scientific literature of people being reinfected. And and so some people will say, well, it's only five. So it's very, very rare and who cares? But in fact, the the reason it's so few in part is probably because it's very difficult to diagnose. So about 40% of people are asymptomatic first time they're infected. So a person that was asymptomatic wouldn't have been tested in the first place. So we wouldn't even know if they got reinfected. And then uh, the other thing is that people that get reinfected probably have a milder infection than they did the first time. Why is that? It's probably because the immune system is already primed because there are already T cells that are ready to go from the first time. And so 
if a person ha had a very mild infection the first time, they might actually have no symptoms the second time. So again, the diagnosis would be missed. Interesting. Uh, and then the other, the third reason is because to really formally prove that somebody was reinfected, you have to sequence the first virus and sequence the second virus and show that they're slightly different. If they're identical, then you can't rule out that it's just one virus that's just been shed over time, the same one. So, you know, very few laboratories are saving samples to do that, right? If you're a busy laboratory testing hundreds of thousands of people, you don't store them. You just run your test, give the result, and you toss it out. So only a few places would be capable of making that determination anyway. So that's why I think it's so rare. And then the other thing, of course, is not that much time has passed. So if, if you need six to 12 months to be susceptible to begin reinfected, we're only now you know, in that window since the virus has only been around since in the U.S. only since February or March. So were you seeing in the beginning any correlation between severity of symptoms and levels of antibodies? Yes, absolutely. People who are sicker have higher levels of antibodies by far. In our own study that you're a part of, persons who had very mild illness, who didn't require hospitalization, when we compare them to people that were sick enough to be in the hospital, their antibodies are about 100 times less. So it's a big difference. 100 times less. Wow. And is there any supposition around immune response the first time and what will transpire the second time? Should somebody get, I mean, you touched on it, but. Yeah. So, you know, as I told you, the adaptive immune system, so B and T cells, they respond by multiplying when they find the foreign thing. So in this case, this, this SARS-CoV-2, this key, key thing, analogy I told you about, you have all these keys sitting around the cells that, that are not, never you haven't been used yet, they're what are called naive, which means they're basically virginal. They haven't ever had their key engaged, so they've never needed to multiply. And they're in an immature state. Once they're used, once that key is used, once the, the virus has triggered a B or a T cell to respond, those cells mature. And a mature cell is actually primed and ready to grow to large numbers again much faster than a naive cell. So if you're infected again, those cells that, that, are, that are not naive, they're called memory cells, they're ready to go. So they're primed and compared to the first time that you were exposed, the cells will take off much faster to much higher levels. And so a vaccine essentially, that's the whole purpose of a vaccine is to give you memory cells so that when you get exposed to the actual infection, you've got immune memory and those cells are primed and ready to go and to head off the infection before it can cause any problems. So in that case, will I need to get a vaccine when I'm eligible for one? I would recommend that you do. So there's a little bit of debate among some physicians or scientists about whether people that have had it should get the vaccine or they should wait longer to get the vaccine. So in the vaccine trials, which included tens of thousands of people for each of these trials, so you know, Moderna, Pfizer, AstraZeneca being the biggest ones in the U.S., roughly 3% of vaccine participants already had antibodies when they got the vaccine because there was no screening and no exclusion of people that had had COVID to enroll in these trials. And those people had no problems compared to the people that didn't have antibodies at baseline. So at least so far, it looks like People who've had COVID have no problem with getting the vaccine, and 
it's probably fine uh, and safe for them to get it as well. And so since antibodies are dropping and people probably can get reinfected, it's probably a very good idea to get the vaccine. Yeah. When will you get it? Probably next week. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, because I'm considered a frontline worker and UCLA is getting its first uh, allocations for its healthcare workers. And I, I have, so everyone is asking me, I have absolutely no reservations about getting it. So do you think that people have reservations about it because it's so new? Yes, it's a mixture of factors. Some people just don't believe in vaccines at all, which I find a little ironic because actually a vaccine is one of the most natural things we have in medicine. It's, it's basically giving your body a proxy to the virus without actually infecting with the virus and letting your immune system do what it does naturally and letting your immune system protect you, which to me seems like a very natural thing. But resistance to the vaccine, so people, some people are worried about how quickly they came out and they, they're worried that the FDA or scientists couldn't do a good job that quickly. My response to that would be, yes, the final process was quick, but these vaccines were actually many years or even decades in, in the making, right? So there are two main designs. One is the RNA delivery vaccine, platform. And it's a platform. So basically all the conditions to deliver RNA to cells were worked out with lots of testing, including human testing. And so they already knew that the vaccine could work. And all they had to do was plug in the the sequence to this virus for one of its proteins. And so there was lots of safety testing, lots of kind of immunology testing done over the last 10 years and more. So yes, this is the first large scale application of the vaccine in people, but there's plenty of background work and data. So it wasn't like this was this invented this year and tried in humans for the first time this year. There's lots of experience. And then the other platform, which is called the recombinant adenovirus platform. So adenoviruses are viruses that cause very mild infections, usually the common cold. And basically what scientists have done was to, is to figure out a way to insert a gene from another virus into an adenovirus that's been further weakened so that it's even less likely to cause any sort of illness. And so again, that's a platform. So scientists have known for a long time how to put, how to modify the adenovirus, how to put another gene in, and they've known that you can vaccinate people and that gene gets expressed and the person gets an immune response against not just the adenovirus, but whatever you put in. And so, and that one, in fact, has been in thousands and thousands of humans for other vaccines. It just hasn't been widely used as it has now. So again, lots and lots of experience. So, you know, based on these things, there's plenty of reason to believe that they're safe. And then the other thing that I hear a lot is, well, you're putting in RNAs, you're going to change my genes and you're modifying my DNA. And that unfortunately is based on not understanding how RNA and DNA work. So DNA is our master blueprint. Uh, DNA is who we are in terms of proteins and uh, our cells. And you can think of it as the master blueprints that every cell uses to make its to make its own proteins that form our body. And DNA is actually, it's so precious, it's so important that it's kept in the nucleus of the cell, which is a kind of a closed office. And temporary copies of DNA are made, and those are called RNA. So you can think of it as a central office having master blueprints that are not to be touched, not to be changed. And then when the workmen outside of the office need something, a template to work on, a temporary copy is made 
of just a small portion of the DNA, which is the RNA, and then that is exported outside of the nucleus into the cell, and the cell uses the RNA to make a protein, to code for a protein. And the RNA is short-lived. It does not copy itself. It does not, it cannot be changed back into DNA. Basically, what we're doing is just throwing some temporary work plans that say, hey, cell, make this protein, and the cell does. And then the immune system can then respond against the protein because that's foreign. Do they have any sense of if the vaccine, if it's a one time, well, I know the, the, the vaccine is two doses, but after that, is it is that it? Do you have to do it annually? We don't know yet because the vaccines have only been in large scale tests for a few months. Mm-hmm. And so all we know right now is that the immunity lasts at least a few months. So we'll find out eventually how much longer it lasts. And part of that will be seeing how long the antibodies last. And part of it will just be seeing if people start to get reinfected after a certain amount of time. So I think it's most likely that boosters will be needed, but whether those boosters are needed once a year, once every five years, I don't know. It's hard to say. And every vaccine varies in this respect anyway, right? So some vaccines you get once and you're done. So measles vaccine, for example, the smallpox vaccine, when we were still giving it, those were lifetime vaccines. Other vaccines need boosters, like the tetanus vaccine, of course, we need every five to 10 years. And why immune responses last longer against some vaccines than others, we don't know, but it's kind of an empiric observation and we follow up on it and then revaccinate as needed. What is the fundamental difference between a vaccine and a booster, if there is one, or is it the same thing? It's the same thing. So a booster is just another dose and it may be a smaller dose, depending on the vaccine, that is used to basically give the immune system a bit of a reminder, right? So you've got your memory cells, but those memory cells may have dropped to very low levels that are too low. And so basically, once you give the vaccine, those memory cells now see that that thing is back, and they will start to make more copies of themselves. And so you'll boost the number of memory cells that you have. Have you been able to quantify yet? how low the antibodies need to be before reinfection is possible? We have not. And that, that's a very difficult question to answer. So the, the, the real way to answer that would be to, to check antibodies very frequently on a large number of people. And when a certain number of those people get infected, then we could probably figure that out. But that's not easy to do. We have a small number of people that we're studying very intensively including you. And so we, you know, we're not going to observe people getting infected and have enough data to do that. I mean, the other way to do it, that's not ethical would be to take a bunch of people with different levels of antibodies and give them the virus on purpose. (laughs) uh, We can't do that with people that has been done with monkeys though. And so in monkeys, at least it does look like there is a cutoff where a certain level of antibodies is important, but Monkey antibodies are not human antibodies, and so it's it's difficult. All we know is that there is some kind of a cutoff, but we can't translate that directly to knowing what the cutoff would be in humans. So I had it in early March, so early that when I first got it, my my doctor thought I'm, I'm it was the flu virus, and as recently as November, I still had antibodies, mm-hmm. according to you, Doctor Yang. <laughs> <laughs> so. So what does that mean? I mean, in terms of there's, there's no way of knowing 
when I might be able to be reinfected, how long those antibodies will last. I know they've dropped off quite a bit since when you first took the sample. Right. Yeah. You were one of our star witnesses in our paper. Yeah. Yeah. You were included in our paper in the New England Journal of Medicine, highest profile journal in medicine. I thought I had made it, but now. Yeah. Well, it's, it's an uncredited role. <laughs> you're, not, you're not listed. By name. Those are the best kind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, this, this, this is obviously an important question and, and everybody that's giving me blood is, is asking this all the time and, and they're following our antibodies with great interest. And yeah, we, we unfortunately, we don't know. We, we simply just don't know. We don't have enough data. And, you know, our test is a little different than everybody else's tests. And so, and the way that we, so we get a very precise number for how much, how much anybody there is, but our scale is different than other people's scales. So compare, it's comparing apples to oranges. And actually the, Anybody tests that you would get through your doctor's office, the FDA-approved ones, they're not even quantitative. So they don't even tell you an amount. They just give you a yes-no. So, yeah, this is, this is an area that is, is really not very well understood, and it's obviously one of the things we're interested in. As the pandemic has evolved, the, especially in your cohort that you're studying, are you tracking as well long-tail symptoms of, of people, or are you just sort of more focused on the antibodies and the immunity? The, the focus is antibodies and immunity, but clinically it has been very, very interesting to talk to people about long-term symptoms. So many of the people I'm following do have long-term symptoms. And, you know, this is what the media has, has called, you know, the long hauler effect. And so it's, it's a broad range. So many of the people that I'm following have absolutely no symptoms, no problems. But there are some that report things like mental haziness, brain fog. There are some that have... I had that anyway, so I don't know if I can attribute it to COVID or not. I don't know about that. I mean, I I think the fact that you can remember lines, I I, I couldn't do it for my life to remember lines. But yeah, one person I have is an accountant who says she's having problems with numbers, even though that's been her life is to deal with numbers. Uh, Some people unfortunately have lost taste and smell and it hasn't come back. So, like my husband, his is not back. Yeah. His is not fully back. So I've got a per- professional perfume designer who <laughs> cannot smell. She said that she's walking around and her friends are telling her that she's got old lady perfume, like just reeking of perfume and she's can't even tell. And so her job is in jeopardy. I have a professional chef who is re- relying on his sous chefs to tell him what things taste like because he can't taste anything. So I've got that. There's some people that still don't breathe right, even though there's no evidence of any abnormalities in their lungs that their doctors can can measure. Some people that get odd aches and pains. Uh, Yeah, it's a whole spectrum of things that we don't really understand. Have you ever seen anything like this? No, not so much. Really, I mean, in infectious diseases, we often get patients who are complaining of chronic fatigue. And so we see symptoms like this, and they may be due to other viruses. So they may be post-viral syndromes or other viruses, or, you know, a lot of this may be kind of a common theme of the immune system being overactivated at some point, and lingering effects of that. Because COVID is an extremely, extremely inflammatory process. Mm. The immune system is highly revved up in a very abnormal way. And in fact, a lot of the damage done in the lungs uh, is probably more due to the immune system than the virus directly itself. That's right. I was reading about that at some point that it's almost like an autoimmune response in the lung, how the, the body starts to attack itself 
in order to prevent COVID damage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a, an over a massive overreaction. So a lot of the treatments that are being tested now actually have more to do with how to moderate the immune system than actually to, to treat the virus itself. What are you seeing be effective treatments against COVID, if any? Mortality rates have dropped, which is why from treatment or lack so multiple things. So one thing is that our intensive care unit doctors have learned a lot about management of COVID. And so they, they have really fine tuned the care of COVID patients in terms of things like fluid management, fluid balance, when to put someone on a ventilator, when not. Well, that has helped. Two other things have helped. One is dexamethasone or high-dose steroids in general. So those, they basically dampen the immune response. So they are immunosuppressive. They, they drop the level of the immune system activity. It's kind of like a sledgehammer. So you pay a price in terms of additional risks for other things, but th that seems to help. There's some data that mortality is helped by that. And then the other is the drug remdesivir, which has been a little bit controversial, not controversial among, I think, scientists and infectious disease doctors who have been really following the literature and following what's going on. But for political, various political reasons, it's been a little controversial, but it, it's an antiviral drug. And especially given early, it does really seem to slow or stop the advancing of the illness by reducing the amount of virus. You know, it's so hard to kind of make sense of all of it. And there's so many conflicting re reports, you know, as the year goes on. I was reading that particular strains or the intensity of the strains that were in Italy, that I guess it's not showing up in the same intensity as it was in the beginning. Is that accurate? Not entirely. So there's been a bunch of discussion about whether the virus is mutating, has mutated to, to become more contagious. And also some other people that have, that have talked about how maybe it's mutating to become less disease causing. And that's, most of that is, is fairly kind of speculative. There is a mutation that most strains in the United States have acquired or, or but it's not clear whether that's a selective process that that, that mutation has taken over because it gives the virus an advantage or whether it's something that viral geneticists call the founder effect, which is basically means that it happened by chance. So if one virus by chance happened to be the mother strain for most of the viruses in the US and that virus happened to have that mutation, then the, then the other viruses would have that mutation, but it's not because it was especially causing anything that different. It's just that it's kind of happened to have it. That's one, you know, it's a little bit controversial whether that's the case. And then there are people talking about how the virus may be changing in terms of becoming less aggressive or more aggressive. And, you know, all of it's kind of speculative. As far as clinicians on the ground have noted, they haven't really seen any big changes on how, how aggressive the virus is. Interesting. How, in your opinion, I, I know it's subjective, but how do you feel that the United States has done in, in our response we have to be careful. <laughs> we can skip that one. <laughs> no, it's okay. I think we've done a dismal job. I think really it's, it's we, we've done a horrible, horrible job, right? So we had lots of advanced warning. We knew this was spreading like wildfire in China back in December, January. It didn't hit our shores till February, March. We 
started off by trying to close the borders, which and, and reduce people coming in and screen people, which is a good thing. But every just about everything else was screwed up. So to get a handle on the virus and stop its spread, testing is absolutely crucial. We messed up testing. We did not set up wide-scale testing as early as we could have or should have. And even now, testing hasn't necessarily caught up to the need. We did not institute good uh, contact tracing, which you know absolutely would have been very helpful and crucial. In the countries that have controlled it, that's that was has been a key part of their strategy. We and haven't did you had that through phone data. Yeah, actually, so Taiwan did it through a phone app, and we haven't coordinated. Things haven't been coordinated on a national level, right? So each state has been left to to deal with it as they wish. There hasn't been clear information and clear clear leadership from the top. So the public confidence has been poor, and that's not necessarily all the public's fault. It's a lot of it is is that they've gotten conflicting messages. They've been told that masks are, don't work or that we don't need masks. They've been told that you know the virus is just the flu. It's not that serious. So we haven't gotten very clear communications and accurate information from our government and from leadership in our government. Considering we're the richest country in the world and probably the most scientifically advanced country in the world, it's been horrifying how poorly we've done. And you know, people will say, well, our, the scientists keep giving us mixed messages. Scientists don't know what they're talking about. Well, other countries where they've listened to the scientists, they've done quite well. And I don't think their scientists are any better than our scientists. I wonder, and this is slightly off topic, but I wonder why in our country there's this movement against science. Yeah, I do too. I don't know. You know, maybe some of it is the fault of the scientists. You know, maybe scientists don't communicate well enough or share their ideas well enough. And I think there's been a backlash in general against education and the feeling that that there's elitism and that you can't trust scientists that's you think a that people think it's diametrically opposed to believing in god or something potentially yeah potentially maybe that's part of it although i know some really top-notch scientists who are very religious uh right. that are not that, you know two are not exclusive right i mean yeah. religion has to do with the unknown and science is both unknown so um, <laughs> there's no reason that they need to exclude each other is it fair to say that this has been one of the more intense years of your career? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I didn't think that I would face a second pandemic. I mean, right. The first pandemic was AIDS and HIV, uh, which I was at the beginning of my medical career. And, you know, we always knew something would come along, but I would not have expected something this, this all encompassing, uh, encompassing. And I would not have expected it to have, the degree of ripples through society that it has, right? So if you had asked me in 2019, how would our society react to a pandemic coming? I would have said, oh, I think that we're gonna, it's gonna unite the public. Politics are gonna be tossed aside because we're gonna have a common enemy that we need to deal with and that people are gonna drop their differences and unite against a common foe. And I would have been amazingly wrong. I mean, it's, it is incredible how the pandemic in and of itself has been weaponized as, as a way to further divide people. Yes, yes. It, it applies to 
both sides. So, right. I don't, I don't want to be seen as biased. I don't want to no. be, seen, you know, just like criticizing the leadership, current leadership in the country. It applies to all sides. So it's, it's, it's not one side or the other there's, and there's been fear mongering on both sides. Fear mongering that the virus is worse than it is. Fear mongering that it's that it's that it's less than it is, and we're destroying the economy for no reason. It's it's been bad all. Around. Mm. What would you say your biggest? And this may be a bit broad, but what would you say has been your biggest learning from the beginning of the year to now? Well, on a personal level, my biggest learning has been how clinical research works, because right? I've always been a basic scientist, right? So I see patients, but most of my time I run a basic laboratory and I, and I actually train PhD students. And even though I don't have a PhD myself, but I've granted several PhDs and I've never been on, at the intersection, which is people that do clinical trials. And so I got thrown into that whole hog. So now I've run several major clinical trials. So I've learned a lot about how things get tested in humans, the moral, ethical, and financial issues related to that, how to deal with the FDA, uh, the whole process of how things are approved. So that's been a huge learning curve. I've learned a lot about this disease, obviously, and about potential treatments for it, things that we're working on research-wise. And yeah, I think I've learned a lot about human nature too. Well, the horrible things we talked about, but also a lot of good things. It's been amazing to see how some people have been so generous in the face of adversity. Patients who are volunteering for clinical trials and they say they don't, they, 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 they just hope it'll help somebody else. Seeing how courageous some patients are that where they're dying or their loved one is dying and really seeing the people on the front lines, the nurses and the physicians that are taking care of the patients. And that usually doesn't include me. I'm usually in my office just filling out paperwork, but the ones that are in the front lines, like how hard they're working and the hours they're putting in and the, the kind of the trauma they're in, enduring to, to deal with these patients. It's incredible. And as far as, you know, you staying healthy, you've obviously you're, you've been exposed and you've been around the virus, you've been studying the virus. So how have you stayed safe? It's the simple basics, right? So masking. Uh, so masks, of, wearing masks definitively works to, to stop the spread of disease. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's probably much more important or much more helpful for a person who has it and, and don't know they have it in them in terms of containing it and them not spreading it. But there's more and more evidence that actually even the person wearing the mask has some degree of protection, right? So the dose... The dose that you get exposed to is probably very important. And so it's thought, for example, that the reason that the mortality rate was so high in the early days of the pandemic among healthcare workers was that many of them got very high doses of exposure. Mm. And you know, before they were masking and, and taking precautions. And so a mask probably reduces, even if you do get infected, it probably reduces how much you get infected with. And the, the less virus that you have at the beginning, the more of a head start your, your immune system has compared to if you've got a large dose. So, so it's been that and uh, just simple things like distancing. Distancing is very important and basically little strategies like making one grocery run a week instead of three of them a week. The less time you spend in the grocery store, the less chance you're going to get infected. Little things like that. It's just common sense. 
not having get-togethers, not eating in restaurants indoors, not hitting bars, although I never did that anyway. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> How do you unwind? I mean, you've had an inordinate amount of pressure on you this year as being a top thinker in this field, the top researcher. I'm sure you felt some kind of responsibility to be cracking this mystery. Sleep. I love sleep. Yeah. And, you know, just relaxing at home. You watch anything at night? I don't have cable. I have Netflix. I <laughs> uh, watched Queen's Gambit, really enjoyed that. Uh, mm -hmm. So, yeah, you know, just, and, you know, again, I, I, I don't want to, I think you're exaggerating a little bit my role. You know, I'm just one person doing stuff, but it's not my, my role is not nearly as stressful as the nurses in the hospital taking care of patients day in and day out or, or my colleagues who are taking care of these patients all the time. I've done a little clinical time, so I have spent some time on the ward seeing these patients, but a couple of weeks, you know, over the, over the last few months. And so I, I'm not, I'm just, just enough to dabble in it, but not enough to, to get stressed out or, or to really be, call myself a frontline worker. I did want to ask you, you mentioned to me one time the vaults, the nanoparticles, the vaults that something about you being hopeful about this new area of research. And I just wanted to ask you, what, what is a vault? Yeah, that's, so that's technology developed by one of my collaborators. And these are kind of natural human nanoparticles. So nobody knows what vaults do. They're, they're these nanoparticles that are already inside our cells. And most of our cells have tens, and tens of thousands of them, and they're just sitting there and we don't know what they do. But my collaborator has figured out that you can put things inside vaults like proteins and that cells will pick them up. So potentially they could be used as some type of a vaccine. And so that's some of the research we've been working on. Well, I thank you and all your colleagues at UCLA for everything you guys are doing. You're incredible. And let me know when it's time for my next blood test. <laughs> Thank you for joining my chat with Dr. Otto Yang. For more information on the novel coronavirus outbreak, please go to cdc.gov. That's a wrap on today's episode. If you have a second, please rate, review, and hit subscribe if you haven't already. Don't forget to share the Goop podcast with a friend. And in the meantime, for more, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.